listen, I use Anchor by Spotify to record my podcast because it's the easiest way to record your podcast. It's got everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Like one click easy. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Welcome to Self-Help Witch, the podcast for spiritual self-healers who are ready to release self-doubt, shame, and external expectations. I'm your host, Dee Michelle, astrologer and self-awareness advocate. In each episode of Self-Help Witch, you'll learn how to cultivate a stronger relationship to yourself through spiritual practices. With each episode, you'll become more confident, clear, and connected to your truth. Let's do it. What is up? Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Self-Help Witch. It's a good day. I hope you all are having a great day whenever you're listening to this. Today, we're talking about the fundamentals of Pisces, which are the fact that Pisces is a water sign, a mutable or double-bodied sign. We'll talk about the symbols or glyphs associated with Pisces, and we'll also talk about mythology. There's a ton of interesting things to talk about, and it does quickly get into the realm of symbol and abstract thinking. So I guess I'm just mentally preparing you for that. And I also wanted to tell you that I made um, some slides with some helpful visuals for some of the concepts I'm going to be discussing. So if it's possible, I would actually recommend just clicking that right now and peeping through it to see what's there and just have the visual in your mind. If you're driving, no worries. I go out of my way to try to explain the visual that I'm talking about at that moment. So I think you'll be fine either way, but I did want to let you know that that is there. Today we are diving deep into Pisces energy. It is Pisces season, and I got to be honest, I love it. I love Pisces season because I am a Pisces, and that's where my sun, Mercury, North Node, and Venus are. So I have, you know, obviously intimate personal experience with Pisces energy, but what's always kind of interested me about it is that despite my personal knowledge of this sign, my lived experience with it, I still find it very elusive. It is hard to pin down, and that is very Piscean in and of itself. So I thought it would be great for us to do an episode just doing a deep dive into Pisces energy. Because like all zodiac signs, I think the keywords don't really do them justice. And the reason for that is because the zodiac represents archetypes. And archetypes in and of themselves are multivalent and multidimensional. What does that mean? Basically, that keywords are never going to fully define what the archetype represents. And in case you are not familiar with the term archetype, the etymology is great for this word. The word arch or arca means original and type is pattern. So an archetype is the original pattern of something. So in order for us to really understand 
the archetype of a zodiac sign, any sign, not just Pisces, we need to go back to the mythology and to the fundamentals, the stories associated with the zodiac signs that we're talking about. They give us the flavor of a time, the attitude, the zeitgeist of a particular moment. And by looking at the element, the modality, and the rulers of that sign, along with the mythology, we can get a very deep and thorough understanding of the energy of a sign that goes so much deeper than the keywords. So that's what we're going to do today. So Pisces is a mutable water sign. And that is really the most foundational, fundamental piece that we need to begin to understand this sign. Let's talk about what water symbolizes first. Water is where we came from. If we think back to the history of life on Earth, it started in water. And so it carries this very mythic, archetypal sense of from where we came, from whence we came. <laughs> There's typically a great mother of some sort, and that great mother is usually associated with the water. And we can see that in mythology all over the world. Water is also where we return. Water is cleansing. There's something very liminal about water. And this is very Piscean as well, because Pisces is the last sign of the zodiac. You may already know that Aries begins the zodiacal year. Well, that means that Pisces ends the zodiacal year. So there's something about Pisces, again, that's very liminal, that's very much about life and death. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the mythology. For now, suffice it to say that Pisces is a water sign that encompasses both the life-giving aspects of water and the death that it can represent as well, the return from where we came. Also, Pisces is mutable or double-bodied. It means the same thing. So what does it mean to be mutable or double-bodied? It means there's a dual nature. Mutable or double-bodied signs, in a word, fluctuate. They change. They are really good at navigating change, and they also don't feel comfortable when things are the same for too long. They can be indecisive as a result because they are good at seeing all the possibilities. One thing that really helped me kind of understand all of the mutable signs, actually, and I learned this from my um, astrology teacher, Chutababa of Nightlight Astrology. He talks about how the double-bodied signs contain the sign before and the sign after them. So in the case of Pisces, they've got a little bit of Aquarius energy and a little bit of Aries energy, which may not help you if you're not super familiar with the signs just yet. But if you've got a little bit of a working knowledge, I think that's really helpful. Although, <laughs> that's those are two very different energies, right? So it's definitely useful for us to study Pisces all on its own. At the risk of really like belaboring this point, though, I just want to make it clear that when I'm talking about double-bodied, I'm also talking about mutable. It's the same thing. And the key to understanding a double-bodied sign is to understand that it's trying to hold two things at once. You're going to hear me refer to the double-bodied nature of Pisces a lot in this episode by talking about these 
to like dichotomous ideals that we see trying to be unified in Pisces. So I just want to make sure that's super clear before we proceed. The dual nature of a double-bodied water sign I think can best be described in the concept of rebirth. Because in rebirth, what you get is both a death and new life. So that concept of rebirth is double-bodied in and of itself, right? Because it contains both death and life. And that is at the heart of the double-bodied nature of this water sign. So let me explain equinoxes and solstices very briefly. I do have a slide that I recommend looking at. I will link it in the show notes. The zodiacal year starts with Aries because that's when the spring equinox is. And obviously spring has to do with new life. Opposite Aries, we have Libra. Libra is marked by the fall equinox when things begin to fall away. Now, an equinox is just when we have equal parts day and night. So in both the first day of Aries season and the first day of Libra season, we have equal parts day and night. In Libra season, night begins to take over. And in Aries season, light starts to take over. Now, we also have solstices. Solstices mark either the darkest day or I should say the least amount of sunlight in a day, or the most amount of sunlight in a day. We get the winter solstice in Capricorn season and the summer solstice in Cancer season. So when we have the most light, for example, in Cancer season, that's because the sun is arcing at its highest point. For Capricorn season, on the other hand, the sun is going to make the shortest or smallest arc it will make because it's not in the sky for very long. The equinox point is the midline between the solstices. So again, cancer season, summer solstice, highest point for the sun, winter solstice, lowest point for the sun. Equinox is going to be in between the two because we have equal parts day and night. All of that to say, from the point where the Winter solstice happens, the lowest point for the sun. The sun is going to rebound from there and then move up toward the midline in Aries season, which means from the point of the winter solstice to day one of Aries season, light is building. What does that mean for Pisces? Well, Pisces is the last season before the equinox. As a result, light is still building, but darkness reigns supreme. I don't know why I felt the need to say that so dramatically, but it's true. We have more darkness in Pisces season than we do lightness. However, we are approaching the moment of equilibrium. And that is where we get a lot of the symbolic significations of Pisces. It is certainly where we get the idea of Pisces being a hopeful sign. Why is it hopeful? Because light is returning. There is a feeling during Pisces season that spring is approaching. Where I'm at in the Midwest, we have crazy weather this time of year. Like Sunday and Monday, we had 60 degree weather. I went outside and ran. And I noticed in the puddles, there was still ice from the last snowstorm we had last week. So that is very much Pisces. It's still winter, technically. But we're getting these little breaths of spring coming in. That knowledge that Pisces is the last sign of the zodiac 
and that it marks the moment of light building just before we reach the equinox can tell us a lot. It tells us that Pisces is hopeful. It tells us that Pisces is liminal. And again, it reinforces the idea of rebirth being an inherent part of Pisces because we are being reborn in the spring. The world is reborn. So some of the positive associations of rebirth that we see with Pisces energy are, again, hope, transcendence, rising above. The sun is literally rising in the sky during Pisces season. We're transcending that death that we experienced in the winter at the solstice. We are returning and we are being born again. On the other hand, we can get a sense of exile, a sense of being left out. Like the light is not quite all the way back yet. And so we are waiting and feeling maybe separate in a really fundamental existential way. Also, the idea of being sort of torn apart. So if we go back to the idea of rebirth and the fact that you have to die, in a sense, in order to be reborn, there's a loss there. There's a letting go there. But Pisces is very intimately acquainted with the letting go that needs to happen in order to be reborn. But that is really hard. <laughs> that is a hard thing to do. It's where we get the signification of transcendence and mysticism and liminal spaces. But that doesn't mean that it's always easy or useful for Pisces, right? I think it's really cool. And as somebody with a lot of Pisces placements, I definitely resonate with the mystic quality of it. Being connected to something greater, something spiritual. However. That is not always easy because we are embodied humans. We are people living on the material realm. And so there's a sense that like, I'm here and there. It's hard to be all in one place with Pisces. I want to talk a little bit about the symbols, the glyphs that are often associated with Pisces and Pisces myths. So the Pisces glyphs that we're most familiar with are either the two fish that are swimming head to tail. So you've got one fish's head at the other fish's tail and same for the other, right? They're swimming in a circle. Uh, the other image that we see are two curved lines with a horizontal straight line connecting them. The one thing that stands out to me in the Pisces glyph, so we have the two lines that are almost diametrically opposed, like life and death seem like total opposites, but then there's that horizontal line that connects the two. And as a result, we can connect those things. We can connect those things that we think are diametrically opposed with the sign of Pisces. So over and over with the sign of Pisces in the myths, in the symbol, uh, the glyph that we were just talking about, you're, you're going to see this repetition this motif of two things that seem to be opposite coming together in unity, in union. These oppositional forces dissolving in order to transcend their differences and ultimately unify. 
this is a pattern it is a motif that comes up over and over again in Pisces it is the foundational energy of Pisces it's these two forces that seem opposite like light and dark or death and life and what Pisces does is it dissolves those differences dissolves the borders the boundaries so that the two seemingly opposite forces can come to a middle ground and I do think that's reflected in the glyph by that horizontal line that connects the two curved lines it's the unifier it's the energy that brings disparate things together in my research of Pisces imagery I also encountered something called the vesica Pisces and the ichthys that's spelled I-C-H-T-H-Y-S now the Visica Pisces is a Venn diagram, essentially. I mean, that's exactly what it looks like to me. Maybe there's a subtle difference that I don't know about, but in case you're not um, familiar, a Venn diagram is just two circles that are overlapping to create that third oval in the middle where they overlap. And the ichthys is actually the outline of a fish that I don't know about you, but I would call the Jesus fish. In the 90s, they were on lots of cars in the Midwest where I grew up. And that ichthys is actually a part of the Vesica Pisces. So if you imagine a Venn diagram, where those circles meet, that creates an ichthys, that little fish outline. And I've got a visual of that on the slides that I have linked in the show notes if you'd like to see what I'm talking about. Now, this is super interesting because, of course, when I think of the Jesus fish, I think of Christianity. It makes sense why the fish would be associated with Christianity, right? One of the most common stories I think of when I think of Jesus is when he fed people with the bread and the fish. And there's more to say on this later because Jesus has also been associated with Pisces. In early Christianity, Rather than the cross being like the main emblem of the religion, the fish was. It was a way for sort of undercover Christians to identify one another. It became a symbol of Christianity in that way. But before that, the ichthys, or what we know today as the Jesus fish, was actually used in pagan fertility rituals. And if we look at this Venn diagram as a whole, we can see that it definitely has feminine symbolism built into it. It is reminiscent of a womb, of an entry, of a portal. So there's a connection to goddess energy, the entrance to the womb, and also the entrance to the afterlife in the spiritual world. So just to recap and bring it all home here. The symbols that represent Pisces give us a really strong compass toward what Pisces energy is all about. Pisces is a space in time that serves as a portal between the worlds, between life and death, the material and the liminal. And what it ultimately wants to do is dissolve the boundaries between those two places. It wants to be both of this world and transcend its limitations. Um, 
that are found in the body. And we're going to see this imagery of rebirth and needing to go through a death process in order to be reborn and wanting both <laughs> repeated over and over and over again every angle we look at the sign of Pisces. To give us a deeper understanding of the double-bodied nature of water that we get with Pisces, it's so important for us to talk about the mythology. And I'll be real, this is something I had to research because I am not a mythology expert. I think it's so interesting, but it's not something that I've been studying for a very long time. So that being said, I got my information from Jessica Davison's website. She is an astrologer and an academic that publishes really great information, really well-researched information. And Gary Crawford, who is another academic that wrote a very thorough piece on Dionysus that I'll reference a little later on. And I will definitely link both of those academics' websites in the show notes so that you can do your own reading on this because there is so much to talk about. And I can only talk about so much here. So Jessica Davison talks about how recently scholars and researchers found in India what appears to be the Pisces glyph carved into rock. So it's this pinkish image of two fish, one with its head up and the other with its head down with a horizontal bar or line connecting the two. That is the Pisces glyph. <laughs> and Davison talks about how, yeah, like we can't know that they were talking about Pisces. We don't know why they carved this into the rock. But they also found something that appeared to be the Aquarius, like water bearer glyph close by. So we can, I think, safely assume that this had to do with astrology and that even as far back as 10,000 BC, the fish were associated with Pisces. And that brings us into the earliest myth associated with Pisces, which is the Syrian goddess Atargatis. Don't come for me if I'm saying it wrong, okay? <laughs> She's a Syrian fish goddess of water and fertility, according to Jessica Davison, and she's also depicted as a mermaid. So to explain how Atargatis plays into the story of Pisces, I'm going to read from Davison's website here. She says, The Babylonians represented the Pisces constellation as a bird and a fish connected by a cord. The bird was known as the swallow and followed the line of the ecliptic, which is the path of the sun, while the fish swam upwards. Together they were known as the tails or the tail of the swallow. The curious inclusion of the bird comes from a Syrian myth although in this case the bird is a dove. The story goes that two fish found an egg in the Euphrates and pushed it onto the land. A dove settled on the egg and it hatched and the goddess who emerged from the egg was Atargatis. Now something I find very fascinating according to Davison is Atargatis had a son called Ichthys and Ichthys was a fish. Now if you're like wait what the hell's an Ichthys? Remember that with the Vesica Pisces symbol, that Venn diagram we talked about, the Jesus fish is an ichthys. It was referred to as ichthys, which is Greek for fish. So that is really interesting. And this is really where we start to see the Pisces myth come into being. Davison also argues that 
The story of Atargatis was later adopted and adapted by the Greeks, who turned Atargatis and her son into Aphrodite and Eros. And that's where we get into the Greek mythology. So we've covered the more ancient mythology associated with Pisces, and now we get into the Greek myths, which, as we'll see, definitely derive from the earlier ones. And I'm even going to bring our pal Jesus Christ into this conversation, because as you'll see, there are some synchronicities that we just can't ignore. Now, I got a lot of my information for this section from Gary Crawford's website. He talks about Dionysus and Pisces and then, of course, from Christine Davidson, which I have already mentioned. So starting with Aphrodite, the story changes depending on who you ask. The details are a little bit different. But first, let's just remember that Aphrodite is Venus in Roman culture. Okay, so Aphrodite is Greek. Venus is Roman. And this story that is pertinent to Pisces regarding Aphrodite is of her and her son, Eros. Eros is Cupid in Roman mythology. Eros is Greek. Cupid is Roman. Okay. So in this story, Eros is Aphrodite's son. And they are minding their own business on the river Euphrates when the god, the serpent god, scary guy, Typhon, shows up. And, of course, they're freaked out. There's a version of the story that says Zeus turns them into fish to help them hide. And there's another version that says the fish actually helped by turning Aphrodite and Eros into fish so they could hide. Either way, I think the more important point is that once they become fish, Aphrodite and Eros tie themselves together so as to not get lost. For me, this is evidence that the water is the liminal space, this place between worlds that houses both life and death in the sense that it is able to provide rebirth. In order to be reborn, you have to die. And I think the fact that Aphrodite and Eros tie themselves together in the water shows us how the water can be almost like, it almost has trickster energy. It's easy to get lost and swept away. It's easy to lose yourself in the water. Why? Because that's where we go to be reborn. After Typhon is defeated, Aphrodite and Eros go back to their original forms and the fish are put in the sky in the Pisces constellation as a thank you. There's other versions of the story where it's actually Aphrodite and Eros themselves being put in the sky as fish, but the fact remains that eventually the fish end up in the sky. So that definitely, obviously overtly ties this story to Pisces, but I think that the deeper symbolism of the water and being tied together in the water should not be overlooked. It also certainly relates to the glyph. It reminds me of how the two curved lines in the Pisces glyph are connected with that horizontal line and how the two fish that swim head to head, they are connected as well. Now, beyond Aphrodite's story, we also have the story of Dionysus, which I did not realize was related to Pisces until I did this research, but now it makes perfect sense. So Dionysus, who we think of as the god of wine, debauchery, theater, partying, living it up, he's double-bodied in that he's both mortal and immortal, and he also incorporates or encapsulates this truth about Pisces, which is that it both wants to dissolve 
and come to life. It wants both life and death. So Gary Crawford's work is really useful in understanding this. He calls Dionysus the subterranean Zeus, which I thought was very fascinating. Number one, because Zeus is actually Jupiter and Jupiter rules Pisces. Number two, we've talked about how Pisces is double-bodied in that it contains both life and death, the water aspects of both life and death. And for Dionysus to be the subterranean Zeus, it's as if to say he himself is double-bodied. He is both mortal and immortal, which is reflected in his story. Dionysus' story, well, he's got more than one story, but for the purposes of our talk, the story of his birth is really fascinating. Now, Crawford talks about how there are multiple versions of his birth. The most popular version of his story, and I'm quoting from his website now, says he was the divine son of the mortal Samuel by Zeus. Others have him as Demeter's offspring, while many accounts also reveal him as the son of Persephone with her father Zeus. Sidebar, that definitely drives home our point about water having that dual nature of life and death, right? Persephone, like the princess of the underworld. Anywho. He goes on to say, To me, the story of Dionysus being born from his father Zeus connects with the dominant theme of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost that arose in the age of Pisces. This strange birth occurred after a jealous Hera tricked a pregnant Samuel into becoming burned to ashes by Zeus, resulting in the fetus of Dionysus becoming salvaged and sewn into the thigh of Zeus. Since Dionysus was born from his mother's womb and his father's thigh, he became known as the twice-born, Crawford also quotes Liz Green frequently in this piece, and one particular passage, he says, Dionysus embodies a, quote, ecstatic unity with natural undying life and a seeking of union with the divine that paradoxically mixes the holy with the vicious and the sadistic can be explained through his connection to Pisces. Because in the sign of the fish, these two opposites live side by side and each generates the other much like the interplay between good and evil. I'd like to bring in the fact that the story of Christ actually follows along this same kind of archetypal pattern as well. So first of all, let's talk about double-bodied. If we're talking about somebody who's both mortal and immortal, definitely Christ fits that criteria. Crawford says, although the message of Jesus and his portrayal in the Bible differs from some of the images of Dionysus found in myth, Schlein, another author that he quotes in this piece, notes that both Christ and Dionysus were outcast charismatic leaders accompanied by scruffy followers, that they each represented the mystic side of human nature, and that both of them triumphed over conventional rationality and pragmatism. He says astrologers have also connected both Dionysus and Jesus Christ to the sign of Pisces, some believing that Dionysus was a significant precursor to the age of Pisces ushered in by Jesus who some also believe was a Pisces sun sign with a lot of additional Pisces energy. For example, there's all the fish symbolism associated with Jesus and his disciples. In Archetypes of the Zodiac, Kathleen Burt found that both Dionysus and Jesus Christ traveled through the same geographic region and preached many of the same lessons. Humility, resignation, surrender to grace and God's will, receptivity, and honoring the divine. Liz Green in The Astrology of Fate wrote that Dionysos is a sort of shadow Christ, a Christ with a phallus, for he himself, like Christ, is both victim and redeemer. 
In addition, just as Jesus Christ's birth became an event celebrated through widespread religious ritual, so was Dionysus, the divine son, revealed and honored in widespread ancient rituals, including the Eleusis mystery ritual. So there's something about both Dionysus and Christ that has to do with divine surrender, but also like the surrender of ecstasy. And this is, again, where we get back to those archetypal interpretations of life and death that can be seen in the concept of rebirth. And at the risk of really belaboring the point, let's overtly, explicitly reconnect this to Pisces. As the last sign of the zodiac, where the light is rising to meet its equilibrium at the equinox, Pisces holds both death and life. It is the gateway through which we are reborn at the spring equinox. So it certainly holds what we're talking about with both Dionysus and Christ, where we've got this divine surrender and we're transcending our material limitations. We must in order to die, right? If we're speaking metaphorically. And so that process, that Dionysian, that, that Christ-like process of being reborn and surrendering and transcending is a thousand percent Pisces energy. And of course, every myth that we talked about had a character who was double-bodied, who was literally twice-bodied. So we've said a lot about the mythology associated with Pisces and how it speaks to the double-bodied nature of the sign that really Pisces is about reaper and that that in and of itself is double-bodied because in order to be reborn, you have to die. We see that concept demonstrated through the mythology and the placement of Pisces in the zodiacal lineup. Now, the last piece of the puzzle has to do with the rulers of Pisces. Not just the rulers, but the dignities, which refers to how powerful a planet is in Pisces. And if you're unfamiliar with this concept, basically every zodiacal sign has a planetary ruler a planet that does really well in this sign because it is said to be their home. This concept comes from traditional astrology, and so you'll see online that different people will say there are different rulers of the signs. The traditional ruler of Pisces is Jupiter. The modern ruler of Pisces is Neptune. And I'm going to talk about both. So the traditional ruler, Jupiter, when we hear Jupiter, now I think the word that comes to mind for most people is abundance. And to me, that is true. However, it is certainly not the whole story with Jupiter. Jupiter represents not just abundance, but unity, big picture, hope, spirituality, divinity, law, fairness. Jupiter was Zeus, the king. And if you imagine, you know, a benevolent king, the king is going to care about what's just and fair. But Jupiter is also about divinity. It's about being connected to the spiritual realm. And it is really 
unifying. Like that is honestly the first thing I think of when I think of Jupiter is this energy that can bring cohesion to anything. It sees the big picture, just like a king would be able to look out on his kingdom and see how all of the pieces are working together, right? That is Jupiter. And all of those things are very Pisces, which will be made more clear when we talk about the planet that does not do well in Pisces, which is Mercury. So shit, let's just talk about Mercury. So Mercury is in its detriment in Pisces. And all that means is it's not comfortable there. The reason why is because Pisces is very different from Mercury. Mercury's home signs are Gemini and Virgo, an air sign and an earth sign, both of which are also mutable, double-bodied, but very different in terms of the elements. A mutable air sign wants to communicate and parse out the details. That's Gemini. An immutable earth sign wants to break things down as well. It is also analytical, but we're dealing with material resources rather than intellectual ideas. Not that Virgos aren't intellectual. Of course they are because they're ruled by Mercury, right? So Mercury in and of itself is all of those things. Analytical, detail-oriented, intellectual. And I'm not saying that Pisces is not those things. What I am saying is that's not the natural energy of Pisces. Pisces wants to flow. It is Jupiterian. It wants cohesion. It wants things to work together effortlessly. It doesn't want to think about the details. It wants it all to just flow. And again, this is why Mercury doesn't do so hot in Pisces, because Mercury is our intellect and our communication, and when we're not focused on the details, it's hard to communicate very well. It's also hard to get your thoughts straight sometimes. However, suffice it to say that Mercury not doing very well in Pisces and Jupiter ruling it gives us a lot of information about the symbolic nature, the energy of Pisces. It likes big picture thinking. It likes hope. It likes unity. It likes spirituality. And it is not so big on diving into the details and having a very analytical conversation. And this kind of brings in Neptune, the modern ruler of Pisces. Neptune is really interesting. I'm actually reading a book right now um, by Liz Green called Neptune that I highly recommend if you're interested in more of the mythology of Neptune. Neptune is about liminal spaces. It's about delusions. It's about dreams. And it's about divinity. When you're having a Neptunian experience, you are certainly interacting with something spiritual. There's a sort of like rapturous, um, like the judgment card in tarot feels very Neptunian to me, but so does the seven of cups. I'm actually looking at it right now. You're not sure what you're going to get, right? Um, you could be having the greatest idea you've ever had, or you could be <laughs> completely delusional. It's hard to tell with Neptune. That being said, I totally see the connection between Neptune and Pisces, even though I ascribe Jupiter as the ruler when I'm interpreting a chart um, of Pisces. I see the connection because Neptune to me is Dionysus very similar in a lot of ways because they both have to do 
with the transcendence of your physical material limitations. And they also both have to do with losing yourself um, and drinking and drugs, which if we're going to like, let's talk about the shadow of Pisces, right? It's escapism. And oftentimes through those modalities where you can transcend your physical body, because again, that's what Pisces wants. It's trying to be free of any boundary. We established that Pisces is spiritual because of its place in the zodiac, that it's the last sign and therefore it has to undergo the death that must occur before the rebirth. And so that is also Neptunian because Neptune represents those liminal spaces. The prefix D-I-S, dis, comes up a lot for me when I think of Neptune. It's about being disembodied. It's about being dismembered, being disintegrated. It's about losing yourself in transcendence. And so, yes, that is super Piscean. And I would say Jupiter and Pisces are both in their highest good about spirituality, about divinity, and about being in touch with something greater than yourself. That's the positive, that's the light side of transcendence that we can get. It's the transcendence of like being on a walk and seeing a butterfly. It's so ironic because it's the transcendence of being in the present moment, which feels like the opposite of transcendence. (laughs) Normally when I want a transcendental experience, I'm looking for escapism, (laughs) like I'm pissed off and I don't want to be where I'm at. But actually, like true transcendence is being mindfully present, truly in the moment. And Jupiter and Neptune can provide those experiences. But that's a lesson of Pisces is how can I be simultaneously in this moment and not constricted, not limited by it? How can I feel free? Well, all right, that is it. (laughs) That covers the long and winding road (laughs) that we took down Pisces Lane. I hope that it made sense. I hope that you learned something. I hope that it was helpful and useful for sure. Listen, guys, I make this podcast for other people. Um, I mean, to be honest, talking through all of this and doing this research was incredibly useful for me personally, but I do this for you. And so I want this to be useful and helpful and interesting to you. So please reach out and let me know what you thought about this episode. I also want to make sure you know about this Love Help Witch resource library. It's completely free and houses every free resource I've ever made. There's a few, um birth chart analysis kind of workbook situations, notion documents that will take you step by step through how to read your own birth chart. There is a tarot resource. um, There are new moon resources um, and all kinds of stuff. So I will put that link in the show notes for you as well. You will also get notified whenever I am offering discounts for services and products. I am getting ready to offer a workshop that I am definitely going to be giving my email crew a discount to. So um, if you sign up for the resource library, you will not only get access to all the free stuff, you will also get discounts for future stuff to come and you'll be the first to know about it, which like, obviously you want to be the first to know. 
So go ahead and rate, subscribe, get that free resource library, and let me know what you thought of this episode for real. Find me on Instagram at selfhelpwitch. Um, feel free to DM, feel free to email selfhelpwitch at gmail.com. Like, call me, beat me if you want to reach me. I don't care. <laughs> Just reach out. Let me know what you think about the episode. Let me know what else you want to hear. And damn it, take care of yourself. But in the meantime, I love you and I'll